0: Fall cleaning isn't really a thing, I guess, but you still have to keep your house looking decent year-round. So here are a couple of tips from Popular Mechanics' sister magazine Good Housekeeping. If you need to get a damp load of laundry to dry quickly, toss a dry bath towel in with your load. And if you want to clean your dishwasher, which you should because it is undoubtedly gross, place a large sponge or several paper towels in the bottom, add several cups of white vinegar, and run a cycle. You can keep this podcast on while doing either of these tasks. And you should, because this week's episode is packed with useful stuff. First, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of the Food Lab on Serious Eats calls in to teach us how to make crazy kitchen appliances out of ordinary household items, like how to make sous vide in a beer cooler or satay using a shop vac. After that, our favorite office woodsman James Lynch stops by to give pointers on splitting wood, which he does all the time somehow, despite living in New York City. Then, Lara teaches Peter Martin to sew a button back on a coat, and Alex George heads out to the Atlantic Ocean to test a magnet that's supposed to prevent shark attacks. Spoiler alert, he does not get eaten by a shark. Turn on your washing machine and your dishwasher and settle in for the next half hour, y'all. I'm your host, Jacqueline Atweiler, and you're listening to The Most Useful Podcast Ever.
1: Here at The Most Useful Podcast Ever, we're big fans of Kenji Lopez-Alt, the author of The Food Lab and Chief Culinary Advisor at Serious Eats. In fact, if you checked out the October issue of Popular Mechanics, you might have noticed his work in our compendium of the best DIY videos you can find online. I had heard that he'd figured out a way to do sous vide cooking with nothing but a beer cooler. So Peter Martin and I decided to call him up. We wanted to know if he'd teach us about that and any other ways he's figured out to cook fancy foods with normal stuff just from around the house. So we got him on the line now. And Kenji, I was wondering if maybe you could start just by explaining how the beer cooler thing works.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, well, the concept of sous vide started in the 70s, but the idea is that you take generally meat, which for vegetables as well, but usually it's meat, and you put it in a vacuum sealed bag, and then you gently lower that bag into a water bath that's set at a very precise temperature. Generally a relatively lower temperature than most other cooking methods. So for instance, if you want to cook a steak to medium rare, that's about 130 degrees internal temperature. So you set a water bath to 130 degrees, lower the steak in, and then the steak cooks basically from edge to edge, perfectly medium rare. So all you have to do after that is take it out and sear it, and you have a perfectly cooked steak. So it's it's really just sort of a foolproof way of cooking meat. And the way it's been done for a long time is by using a piece of equipment called a 2 vide circulator, or a water circulator. And what that does is you place it in the water bath and it circulates the water in there to get a current going and then also maintains that temperature. So you can sort of set it and just have it there all evening and put your steak in and pull it out whenever it's ready. The problem with that, of course, is that it does require a piece of specialized equipment. These days, you can get devices for 200 bucks 100 bucks or so. But If you don't have one, there's a very simple way to do it and that's basically just use a cooler. Coolers are designed to keep cold things cold, but, you know, insulation works both ways, so it also keeps hot things hot. So what you can do is you can fill your cooler with hot water and then use a thermometer to adjust the temperature of that water. You can have a bucket of boiling water on one side and a bucket of cold water and kind of <laughs> pour them in and out until you get it to just the right temperature you want. And then you do the exact same thing. You put your meat inside a zipper lock bag, you squeeze the air out, and you lower it into that water bath and seal the top. And it'll maintain that temperature, you know, depending on the quality of the cooler, for an hour or a couple hours. But for most quick-cooking cuts of meat, like a steak or a chicken or a pork chop or something like that, you really only need about 45 minutes of temperature control. So it works perfectly in a cooler like that. So it's a very sort of inexpensive way to get restaurant-quality sous vide results without having a device at home.
3: Do you put the steak in a Ziploc bag?
2: Yeah, a regular Ziploc bag will work. Ziploc bags, they're not ready to go above about 158 degrees Fahrenheit, but most sous vide cooking is done below that temperature, so it's perfectly safe to cook in the Ziploc bag. In order to get it in there without any air in it, there's um, this little trick. You put the meat inside, seal the top almost all the way, leaving about an inch at the end open, and then kind of stick your finger in that end to keep it open, and then slowly lower the meat into a bucket of water. You can, of course, use the sous vide bath if you already have the cooler if you have it going. You slowly lower it in there, and the water pushes the air out of the bag as you lower it, and then just before that last lip of the edge goes underwater, you seal it, and you wind up with a bag that's you know, not perfectly air-free, but air-free enough for our purposes
1: the circulators, you mentioned that they also create a little bit of a current. Does it affect the cooking that in a cooler, the water will just be still?
2: You know, it does affect the cooking if you're cooking a very large volume of things. So, you know, if you have like six steaks in bags that are stacked all together, then the ones in the center of the stack are not going to get heated evenly, and that's when you would need sort of circulation going on in there. But, you know, if you're only cooking three or four steaks enough for a small family, you don't really need that whole circulation. There's enough convection currents going on inside there that the water moves around.
1: Are there any types of meat or cuts of meat that you would say this is particularly good or particularly not good for?
2: It's good for basically anything that you would cook quickly, so like a steak, a pork chop. Pork chop and chicken are great because, you know, cooked through traditional methods, they're pretty hard to get right. It's pretty easy to overcook them, and when they overcook, they're dry. So this is a very useful method to that, you know, a chicken breast, the government recommends you cook it to 165 degrees, but pasteurization is really a function of temperature and time, not just temperature. So at 165 degrees, you're getting a seven log reduction in harmful bacteria in about two seconds. So that's only one out of every 10 million bacteria survive, and that's considered safe. At a lower temperature, like around 155 degrees, you can get the same bacterial reduction, it just takes a little bit more time. So instead of two seconds, it takes about five minutes. So what that means is that you can safely cook chicken to a lower temperature, which in turn leads to juicier chicken. Similarly for pork. So chicken breast, when I'm cooking it sous vide, I like to cook it to about 150 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's fully opaque, white all the way through. It looks like a traditionally cooked chicken breast, except it's much, much juicier than you could ever get through another method. And as for pork, I like to cook it sort of similar to steak temperatures, maybe on the medium side of medium rare, So around, you know, 130 degrees or so.
3: And for either of those, the chicken or the pork, you would do the same as the steak. Just pull it out, sear it quick, and be done?
2: Yeah, I mean with chicken sometimes I don't even bother searing it, you know, sometimes I'll poach a bunch of chicken breast to these and just have them on hand so that later on I could chop them up and put them in a chicken salad or you know, or slice them and eat them and put them in a sandwich or whatever. So yeah, you, you can sear if you want, but you can also just cook it that way, and leave it unseared and then use it in cold applications later on.
1: Now you also mentioned to me a way that you like to do cold smoking.
2: Yeah, so cold smoking is basically when you smoke food without cooking it. So if you've ever had, you know, like a smoked cheese that's generally cold smoke. So the way cold smoking is done, typically, is you have a big chamber where you hang your food or maybe put it on racks. And then off to the side, you have a firebox. And in that firebox, you're burning wood or preferably getting wood just kind of smoldering. And then the smoke travels through a pipe and gets pumped into that chamber. So it never actually gets very hot in there. All of does is get smoky. So there's a couple of easy ways you can do this at home. My favorite way is to do it in a walk. So what you do is you get a wire rack, like you know, a steamer basket, something like that, Place it in the bottom of the wok, put whatever you want to smoke on top of it. So it could be a block of cheese, it could be some fish, you know, whatever you want. I think it works very well for vegetables as well. And then put some wood chips on the bottom of the wok. So you can get apple wood or mesquite shavings, and those tend to burn a little bit better. And then all you have to do is seal the top of the wok with a piece of heavy-duty aluminum foil, you know, crimp it around the edges nice and tight, and then put it over a burner. And what happens is the burner up the wood chips that are in direct contact with the metal until they start smoking. But it never really gets hot enough in there to actually cook much since the food is so far elevated off the base of the wok. So you turn on the burner just until you smell it, start smoking, take it off and just let it sit. And all that smoke will get trapped in there. And then 10 minutes later, you can pick off the top and your food should have a really nice smoky aroma. The fun thing about this is that you actually, you don't even need to use sort of traditional hardwood smokes. You can can do things like smoke over tea leaves, or you can put some rice grains in the bottom and get a nice sort of smoky toasted rice flavor. So you can can basically smoke with any kind of small, flammable thing that has a nice smelling smoke. You can stick it in the bottom (laughs) of the wok, and it'll add that fragrance to your food.
1: Okay. So then, this is Popular Mechanics. I have to ask if there's any hacks or techniques that you found that use something from the garage.
2: (laughs) So the blowing function on your shop vac, you can use it in a number of ways to help you with your outdoor cooking. If you're using live fire. It blows out air, so it's actually a really good sort of bellows. So if you've ever been to Southeast Asia and seen people cooking satay or other sort of grilled meats on the streets, what you'll see them do is they have their coals underneath, they have the food very close to it, and then they're basically constantly fanning. I mean, the idea there is twofold. First, it's obviously the air feeds the flame, so they burn hotter. And the other thing that it does is the stuff that's dripping off the meat, as it drips onto the coals, it burns. It's generally fat and sugar and things like that. So that burns, and then it can leave a sort of acid smoke deposit on the meat. So you don't want that smoke to come in contact with the meat. So fanning, actually also blows away that sooty burning singing fat. It helps the meat cook hotter and also cleaner. I'm mean, get a much better flavor that way. So without having to go through all the elbow grease of waving a fan at your fire, what you can do is you can build a fire like in your charcoal grill, uh, like your Weber kettle, whatever it is. Build up your fire, put your grapes in place, put your food on top, and then just blow on the coals with the shop back. It'll take care of all that burns nice and hot and burns nice and clean that way.
3: Just make sure the shop back is empty. <laughs> right, it could yeah, be a pretty gonna, terrible meal
2: that, <laughs> <laughs> Awesome,
1: well thanks so much for being on here Yeah that was great, thanks Kenji We really appreciate you taking the time to hop on with us Yeah, no problem. So check out Kenji's book The Food Lab I actually have a copy, it's fantastic And uh, go to see your seats
0: So James Lynch is our resident Log chopper outdoorsman Here at Popular Mechanics And you're actually going to be kind of at large doing this now
4: Yeah, yeah I'm really excited I'll be out a bit, going to Vermont Trying to live a little more popular mechanics lifestyle, so I'm thinking.
0: And you're gonna chop some logs there?
4: Hopefully. I'm gonna chop a lot of wood, some by hand, probably. And then I'm good friends with a guy, an older gentleman who heats his house with wood. And so I split a lot of wood for him last year, and I imagine I'm gonna split a lot of wood for him this year. Wow. Yeah.
0: I've never split a log, I don't know how you do it. It looks fun.
4: It's super fun, actually. It's such a mindless, good exercise, and you're just beating the crap out of something that, like, needs to be hit.
0: Right. You feel exhausted afterwards. Yeah. It's kind of like boxing, maybe. Yeah, you exa- get firewood out of it.
4: Exactly. Cool. Pan-P-energy, I was doing some research to make sure all my stuff was correct, and I came across this supposed Henry Ford quote, which is, split your own wood and you'll heat yourself twice.
0: Oh, I've heard that one before. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. When's the good time to do it? Is it now?
4: You want to season your firewood, and once you leave it, like, outside, basically covered for six months so it dries out some. And there are different people, some split— before they season some split after and what made the most sense to me someone's like i split green wood and then i only have to stack it once because if you're stacking unsplit wood and you split it then you have to stack it again
0: right sounds like good reasoning
4: the good people at steel put out a little guide and they recommend splitting wood when it's cold outside and that splits easier when it's cold outside okay so i mean it's cold fall but also like if you need it probably split wood then Right. do it (laughs) do it
0: then yeah (laughs) Okay, so let's say you're going to do it with green wood. Okay. What do you do?
4: Well, I mean, the first thing really is you want to get the proper protection, safety first, of course, eyes protection, of course, and then hands, you can really get like blisters and stuff bad. But like I've seen chunks of wood and pieces of wood and all sorts of stuff fly into people's faces. Like not frequently, but it's good to protect the soft, fleshy bits of your face. So protection first.
0: Wait, what do you mean? Just eye goggles or do you need to have like a mask?
4: About? Oh, I think glasses are just fine. Okay, okay. I wouldn't worry about getting like a whole ordeal, but protecting your eyes is a good, is, a good oh, move. Always a good move. Good move. Yeah. And then you're looking for a chopping surface. And so part of the reason you don't just want to put it on the ground, not only if you miss are you going to dull your axe in the ground, but also if you have like a soft spongy surface you're chopping on top of, that's going to absorb some of the blow of your chopping. Mm-hmm. So that's why people will put it on something like say a stump. And you want it like a knee height or a little bit shorter. You don't want to be like trying to chop above your waist kind of thing or into the ground.
0: Right. It seems like it would be bad for your back.
4: Yeah. It's just we're trying to get it so that the axe handle is perpendicular to the ground as it strikes the top of the wood you're splitting. So now you've got like knee height and then you got the wood on top of it. So then you're coming like waist. so You can imagine like your arms be out in front of you. That's going to like be perpendicular, hit the wood. Okay. It's called a round. When you have a log that people are cutting into lengths to be split, it's a round. You put that on your chopping block, let's say, a big stump, and you want to get it as far away from you on that stump as possible so that if you do miss it, you're hitting your chopping block and not your going leg. through open air and into leg or food. Yeah, boot. that's
0: the thing that scares me.
4: Yeah, you know, and a lot of people are scared of that. And it makes sense. It's a scary tool and you're putting a lot of force into it, and, you know, it could do damage if you use it you, of course, you want to be careful. You want to have your feet out of the way, about shoulders width apart. You know, you're chopping between your legs so that you're missing them. You're not doing any crazy angles or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Another really important thing, it's kind of like baseball. You want to be looking where you're chopping, and that's going to help you hit where you're chopping. Okay. Same idea. If there's already a crack in the wood, aim for that. It's a weak point. If there's a knot in the wood or like where a branch has been coming out the side, to some degree, don't even bother. It's going to be a lot harder to mm-hmm. chop there. Mm-hmm. So look at that. So you've got your wood set up on the far side. You've got your place selected, your eyeball on it. You're holding your axe kind of across your body with your dominant hand towards the axe head. Okay. And that palm is going to be up, and your other hand's going to be down at the base of the handle, down. And then you're going to swing it up over your shoulders. And as you start coming up, your hand's probably going to move down a bit from the top of the axe head, maybe like three quarters of the way down, so you can get that full rotation and then you're bringing your hands together as you bring the axe over the top of your head down onto the log.
0: Okay, we're both doing this right now. You can't see these oh, yeah. listeners, but we're, we're both sitting here swinging imaginary axes. That's what's happening.
4: So if the people at home are like, this doesn't sound like it makes any sense, well, it's good. Just
0: try drive, it. Go back and listen and put your hands where he said and then try it.
4: If you're on the subway or whatever, <laughs> go for it.
0: Maybe not if you're driving.
4: Yeah, good point. And then you're aiming not for also the center of the log. You want to try to hit the edges of it, and that'll split. I know when I was a kid, I had a scoutmaster who was always like, hit the far side, hit the near side, and if it's still not split after that, go right through the center then.
0: Okay. Because it will probably split itself if you get it good enough? Yeah, exactly. Okay.
4: You're coming down on it and what you're hoping for is that it just like pops to the side and you have like a half on each side. Okay. So that goes like tools as well. So you can use, people think of an axe and an axe is great. People use it to chop them down trees but you can also get a splitting maul and that looks like an axe blade on the front of it, but on the back is more of like a sledgehammer style thing. It gets much wider. Mm-hmm. And that gives a lot more outward force. So when it hits it, it pushes the wood out. Oh, right. And it, like it, it splits off. And also if it gets stuck in there, you can hit the back of it with like a sledge or something like that to force it in deeper. Okay. Whereas an axe blade you can too, but then you're kind of like beating up on your axe. You
0: right, which you don't, don't, really do do that don't much, want to do, right? yeah. Okay, so now you've got a half moon log. Do you just do yep. the same thing?
4: Yeah, you can just twist it, hit it again, and you're good. And you're looking for like... Forearm length, no thicker than like a grapefruit. It's like a good, like, burning thickness to it.
0: Okay, cool. Okay, so then you season it. You stack it and season it. Yep. And that just means leave it outside.
4: I believe so. People have a lot of really strong opinions on like wood stacking and wood seasoning. Okay. And how you do it. I never heated my house with firewood. It's more of like an outdoor thing. So we would just like put a stack and try to keep it under like tree cover, basically. But a lot of people will build like a wood shed and get their very specific stack so it dries out and you leave it there for like six months or longer so it dries out. And but I'm more shopping. On Honestly, the seasoning guy.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. That's all very useful, and I hope you get to chop plenty of wood up in Burlington. Peter's over there rustling around because we have a special segment that we're doing. Lara Sorokonich is really good at sewing. She makes her own Halloween costumes every year that are pretty elaborate.
5: I wouldn't say really good at sewing, I'm just really scrappy with the needle and thread.
0: So Lara did a story recently for us called Getting Started in Sewing, which was stuff that even tough Popular Mechanics readers who work in their garage all the time should know how to do because this is very simple and it's very good for your well-being and life. Yes. And Peter Martin has a coat with a button missing.
3: I do. I have my wife's jacket. I thought I had a coat with a button missing. I was
5: going to say, that looks a little <laughs> uh, fancy for you, Peter. That's who I am on the weekend? It's got a nice um, houndstooth lining in it. Only
0: the best. I would love to see you like get all you know, Try to put this coat on when we're done. <laughs> It'll <laughs> be
3: like <laughs>
5: the big
0: guy in a little
3: coat thing. We'll send it back to you. Like Your button's fixed, but there's a big tear on the <laughs> big back.
0: Big old rip in it. So, Peter has all these things. What does he have, first of all?
5: Your first instruction for basic sewing skills is to just go to like a drugstore or a grocery store, I think Peter went to CVS and picked up a emergency sewing kit, which comes with a couple needles, a couple different colors of thread, a little little tape measure. That's a little advanced. That is
0: advanced.
3: And a thing Um, that apparently you guys both knew what it was that I thought was a grandmother's brooch
5: a weird little foil wiry thing that is a needle threader and not a grandma's brooch and not it a could grandma's brooch Nobody although does. You could, it does you look you could turn it into a like. brooch
0: if you had enough sewing skills and a glue gun
3: all right so i have this jacket the bottom button is missing
5: just like a rule of thumb for sewing buttons back onto things i would say the amount of thread you need is take an arm's length of thread because what you're going to do is you're going to double up Your needle, so it's going to be half as much as your arm's length is what i are going to be using. So, So
3: I measured out my one arm's length?
5: Yep and snip that off.
3: Oh, now I get to use the brooch.
5: Yeah, um, <laughs> so if you don't have a fancy needle threader, you can just put that thread through the eye of the needle, which is the hole in the needle. It worked. So before you get started sewing, Peter, you're going to want to put a knot in the end of your thread. Oh, boy. thread.
3: Like a fishing knot? I could do that.
5: Honestly, there is a fancy way to do it, but the easiest thing is for you to just wrap it around your finger and then pull the end through the loop.
3: So I have the thread doubled over.
5: Yep, you thread the needle, so you put the thread through the needle, and you have it so that it's on equal length on each side of the needle. And I
3: wrap both lines of thread around my yep. finger and then just pull it through?
5: Yep. Oh, that's easy. And I would do that twice. It's basically, all it's going to do is prevent you from pulling your thread all the way through the hole that you're creating with the needle and therefore having nothing, so.
3: I got my knot. Okay, you and got 25 your knot. minutes it. later. 25 minutes later. <laughs>
5: okay, so you're going to pick up your jacket. You're going to figure out where the button went before. Got it. Do you know where it went? I do. Okay. Take your button in your other hand to your non-dominant hand and place it over the spot where it should be right side up. Okay. Yep. Now you're just going to take your needle. You're going to pick a hole on there and you're going to take your needle from the inside of the jacket okay. to the outside. Push it out through. Yep. Okay. And get it through one of those holes. This is harder than I thought. Got it. Okay. And then pull that thread all the way through.
3: I oh, want it caught on my nut. There you go. Congrats. Hey. All right.
5: Okay. So check out your other buttons and just see what the pattern is on, like, if it's forming an X or if it's...
3: It is just two lines. Equal two signs. parallel vertical lines.
5: We'll yeah. So way. you're going to mimic that. So Peter just put his needle through the bottom left hole on the button. It's a 4 hold button. Now he's going to go up to the button over it because that's the way that the other buttons look. And that's going to create one little stitch that'll hold your button down. Looks great. Just keep an eye on your button. Make sure you're not pulling your thread so tightly that it's like flush against the. Yeah, Yeah. it needs a little slack because obviously in order to wiggle (laughs) that button through the the hole. hole. Yeah. Yeah. So just be conscious of that. Some people will take like another needle and put it underneath to hold it there. But I just think it's. You think I'm ready if you just to eyeball
3: it? Yeah. I think you can handle it.
5: Yeah. Okay, so, so now you're just going to repeat those two steps.
3: So I don't go to the other side and start doing that. I nope. do a few loops You're going to do that side. side first. It's really hard to guess where a buttonhole is.
5: Yeah, you'll get used to it. From Also, if you look where you went before and you oh. just go, <laughs> if you just <laughs> see where your last Tricks needle point train. went, there you go. And you're going to repeat that, I would say, probably like five or six times.
3: Am I trying to cut back in to have an angle back in towards where the thread is coming? For when I do loop around this thread at the end, it's not yeah, super Yeah, that's probably
5: a good idea. I actually only ever do buttons in X's, so...
0: I do, too. Yeah. yeah. Weird. It I feel weird. like it's safer somehow. It yes. feels like this button will never come off because, because I make X's like all the time. Because it's all knotted
5: time. up on there or whatever. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> We're I don't think I've ever even seen guys. an equal
0: sign. Maybe that's why the button came off.
5: Yeah, that's true. The other buttons on there are looking a bit... Uh, yeah, the one right
3: above this one. It's
5: <laughs> like hanging on by a thread.
3: Do a preemptive strike on Literally. the yeah. buttons. All right, so now go over. I'm on the bottom side, so I'm going to go back up through the other side now.
5: Yep. So Peter has completed his relay around the first set of holes. <laughs> and now he's going to do the same thing on the other set it of holes. It is kind of like a relay. It is.
3: So I've done four or five passes on both sides. Yep. Have my equal sign. I came back down through the bottom of the button.
5: Okay. So you're going to push the needle through the fabric back up toward the button, but don't bring it through the button. You're going to bring it out. Yep. It creates like a little, yeah, exactly. I've actually
3: gotten closer to the base, but you know, it looks good.
5: Yeah. And so then what you're going to do is you're going to wrap the remainder of your thread around the um, threads that you've put in already, and it creates like a little-
3: But leave a little slack, right? A little stump
5: in the middle. Yeah. Once you've got it wrapped around multiple times, you're just gonna take your needle and stab it through that little trunk trunk that you've created, yeah. And you're just gonna stab that little stump like two or three times. Once you have passed that needle through your little stumpy like three or four times, uh, you can cut it and your button is all attached. Needle release.
3: I should probably cut all this extra. Yeah, your little, the
5: yep, the end of your knot, you should probably cut. And look at that. All
3: right, Larry, you want to judge? You want yeah. to try to put it in the buttonhole? <laughs> <laughs> it's the real test if this it's thing can actually, actually button. Actually, it's
5: not that bad. Oh. It's, it's got that stump to sort of put it on. Yeah. The other one is, again, as we said, well, hanging now, on by a thread. Now that I'm button. good,
3: maybe I'll, that's what I'll do the rest of today.
5: Don't you feel empowered now that I you do. know how to do this? Oh, that works perfectly. You I did feel a beautiful job, Peter. Thank you. Actually, it's not too tight at all.
0: Huh. There you go. You get an A.
5: A plus.
3: All right. I'm into it.
0: Eleanor is back again for everybody's favorite segment. Ziggurat facts. Ziggurat facts. And Alex is here too because Alex, do you know what a ziggurat is? No.
6: That's why
7: I'm here.
0: <laughs> I'll strap in. I feel like I sort
7: of know what a ziggurat is. Well, I have a pile of facts. Some might say a pyramid of facts. Hey. Some might say a ziggurat of facts uh. to help you out. Ziggurats are old Mesopotamian structures, not unlike a pyramid, but instead of, you know, how pyramids have those smooth sides that lead some to believe that they're created by aliens, but they're not, the ziggurats have staggered, step-like sides. Oh. So, wait, so is like a Mayan temple a ziggurat? Not Mayan. Mesopotamian, so like basically what is now the Middle East. Right. But I mean, aren't Mayan temples shaped that way? They
0: don't count kind because of. they're not from the right place.
7: Yeah. So I guess what differentiates a ziggurat from a Mayan temple is we don't really know what they were used for. People have speculated that they were temples at top, but... But no one knows what they are. None of them have been preserved well enough. I didn't really look into the difference between a Mayan temple and a ziggurat. You didn't? I I didn't. And now I feel foolish. (laughs) (laughs) And and, well, I feel foolish.
6: Some professor of archaeology somewhere like,
7: what? (laughs) Outrageous!
0: Okay, if you're outraged and you are a professor of archaeology, please call in and send us some honey that's what people do these days.
7: (laughs) I do have one more modern fact about a ziggurat. It's a little more modern than 2100 BC, which is when they were thought to be built.
0: How much more modern?
7: Quite a bit more modern. During the Iraq War, the most recent one, Saddam Hussein would park his jets next to a ziggurat in hopes that people would not bomb them because they wouldn't want to destroy What was left of the cigarette? And that was. That's sneaky. It was not really successful. He got bombed anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's sneaky.
0: That's the kind of thing Saddam Hussein would do, I think.
6: Those are some good cigarette facts. How do you feel, Alex? I was worried that cigarette was like some new e cigarette (laughs) (laughs) vaping (laughs) mechanism. I was certain it was a marketing word for it, but now I feel enlightened. Thank you. Tomorrow
7: there's going to be an e cigarette brand named Cigarette.
0: There's a new segment in our magazine this month. It's called Roy rates instruction manuals. Do you like instruction
8: manuals or you, you don't? I'm an instruction manuals kind of a guy. You I know? could see that. Yeah, you need instruction manuals.
0: Say you got something that's fallen apart. Is it worth looking at the instruction manual or are
8: some just so bad that? Uh, yeah, well, actually, that's the nub of it right there, Jackie. You know, instruction manuals have a poor reputation because they're often not well written but we found you know with some research and digging through a wide variety of manuals we found some pretty good manuals out there actually
0: is there one category that tends to have really great instruction manuals
8: i can't say that i surveyed these varying industries widely enough i can tell you that plumbing products generally like the ones you get at a home center tend to be pretty bad. I could see that. They probably figure you know what you're doing if you're buying it. Yeah, I mean, well, most plumbing parts are installed by plumbers that know what they're doing. But I had an incident recently where the little plumbing part, and I took it out of the package, and sure enough, there was a tiny little instruction sheet folded up in there. I took it out. It was in three different languages, and it was describing a part that was not the part that I bought. <laughs>
0: So you had useless information in three different languages. Yeah, I thought it. that was kind
8: of interesting. <laughs> Equipped with a really badly drawn drawing of the part that wasn't mine, again, but of the part that, you know, it was for, I thought, well, that's ironic. So not only did they put the wrong sheet into the product box there, but the drawing itself was poorly done. Now, we looked around, and we happened to find some actually very good instruction manual. The company that owns the American brand Browning, they have a a shotgun that they've produced for, you know, I don't know, a century. The Browning A5. The instruction manual was outstanding. It was like a textbook on how to do an instruction manual.
0: Well, it better be for a shotgun. <laughs>
8: yeah, no, that's right. Who knows? Maybe some first-time gun owner is going to buy this thing, and they haven't been properly instructed. The instructions tell you all about it in no uncertain terms, with big red arrows pointing to things, and caution labels. <laughs> this is
0: where the bullet comes out. Do not
8: aim at face. <laughs> uh, shells, shells. Oh, <laughs> shells, sorry. <laughs> See, clearly, I need instructions yeah. for this thing. We'll refer you to page five. <laughs> but the point is that most of what should be in an instruction manual should be common sense, derived from the people that made it, designed it, have a lot to say about their own product, but often they say it poorly. You know, I'll give mm-hmm. you another example of a well-done manual was the European company Bosch. They make drills and impact drivers, among many other fine power tools. Well, the Bosch manuals were outstanding. They had computer-generated drawings in there that were essentially like a magazine-quality Drawing.
0: Right. And I think you were telling me also that McLaren, those really fancy oh, cars, have like these amazing collectible.
8: Yeah, no, the McLaren manual for the F1, it's in a, a category all its own. Beautiful, hand drawn illustrations, very thorough. It's actually a hardcover book beautiful illustrations with transparent views. It reflects the sort of knowledge of technical illustration that Mm -hmm. that we have prided ourselves on here, where if you want to show, let's say, a part, but you also want to show through the part, then the part has to be either entirely transparent with just like the outline, or it's partially transparent. So they have like transparent views where you're looking... I don't know, you know, through the steering wheel to a gauge on the dashboard. And the perspective of all these views are geometrically correct, and it's drawn by people that understand drafting and how to do these kinds of technical illustrations.
0: Say you're someone like me, for example, or somebody who's not particularly skilled, and you get something with an instruction manual that is completely indecipherable. Where do you turn? Are
8: there online resources,
0: or what should you do?
8: There isn't an easy answer. You should, of course, look online. I mean, that's your fallback position. Sometimes there are user groups and communities of people out there who have bought this item get onto a thread where people are discussing the various idiosyncrasies of putting this thing together or perhaps repairing it. There's always YouTube. A lot of people are on YouTube, you know, showing various things. Now, there's also, in some cases the dreaded 1-800 number, yeah. <laughs> you know, that you can call. And I've had mixed results with that, but that's perhaps the next thing that we should rate or 1-800 customer service numbers.
0: Oh, absolutely. Although maybe if enough people call those numbers and say the instruction manual is insufficient, maybe that'll eventually get up the chain and they'll make a better instruction manual.
8: Yeah, yeah, maybe. You know, we could always hope. Maybe popular mechanics should get in the game of making instruction manuals. That's what I think. Years ago, we did very detailed, like Furniture projects and so on And we would have instructions on there And many, many, many step-by-step photos And we did technical illustration I mean, this, some of the stuff was complicated How to build a pool table, you know mm-hmm. We had a professional woodworker Write in and show us the pool table That he built from our That's plans That's amazing Yeah, yeah, and he was like, you know what? Guys, you did a great job with this, but I got to tell you, it was a challenge. We showed people how to build a pool table in six pages. I mean, normally you'd want a book
2: you know, <laughs> right. to do right. that. Right.
0: Well, and you can always email Ask Roy if you have real questions. <laughs> ask Roy at PopularMechanics.com. So if you want to ask Roy a question, if you get a really tough bind with one of your instruction manuals, you can just email that, and Roy will help you out. Ask Roy at PopularMechanics.com. I'll
8: do what I can to help.
0: So I'm guessing by the fact that Alex George is here in the office, your testing table item worked.
6: All my limbs, too.
0: We have Alex here and also Larry Orkanich. You were testing something called a shark bands?
6: Shark bands with a Z. Okay. By the way, for all people naming products, please don't put a Z where there should be an S. <laughs> <laughs> it's juicy J, name it. <laughs> shark bands. So shark and then B-A-N-Z. And so the basic idea is it's the leash that connects your ankle to your surfboard. So if you wipe out or something like that, you don't have to go swimming after your board. It feels pretty heavy and what you do is you wear it in the water and it's this heavy enough magnet that it interrupts the shark's electrical sensing basically the way it senses for where it is in the water and how it uh, finds prey and all that they don't explain too much about exactly how it works because it's all patented stuff but you see these videos where they'll chum water and then they'll have this band in the middle of it and then the sharks will kind of dissipate i think the analogy they use is like uh, if someone shined a flashlight right in your face you would be like yeah Oh, okay. kind of go in the opposite direction. From a usage standpoint, it's pretty heavy. It feels like you're wearing like little gram weights like you'd use in science class or something like that. It's a little bit more annoying than just a typical one. Uh, oh, then it's a typical, like a, typical leash a typical leash that you would just wear. And it's just a piece of fabric and Velcro that holds it on right there. So you definitely notice it. The relationship with sharks when you're in the water is kind of, the saying is, Sharks are there whether they're there or not. Like, it's always in the back of your head yeah. or, like, somehow they're kind of oh, always there. Yeah. The idea behind it, I, I think, is kind of cool. Like, if it helps psychologically it's for you to be a little bit calmer knowing that you have this device that's kind of repelling it like that, that's pretty rad. I can get behind that.
5: Right. Depends on how much it is.
6: The shark bands, too, the uh, wrist or the ankle one uh, is 70 bucks. Okay. But the leash was more. That's $180. You can right, get a sorry. leash for like 30 bucks, right, typically. Right. I was thinking about this when I was using it. I'm always averse to anything with a battery that you bring into nature. You kind of prevent prevented from getting lost in whatever you're doing. So I was a little bit averse to it. But if I were going somewhere where I was especially worried about it, you don't have to worry about it too much out in New Jersey where I go. But if you're going somewhere like Santa Cruz or... Places like uh, Reunion Island. Reunion Island yeah. yeah near Madagascar. Places like that where it's actually a real thing, you know. Couldn't hurt. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of the idea.
0: There's uh, there's a writer who writes for Popular Mechanics, Bucky McMahon, who's a big surfer. Oh, yeah, that's right. And he wrote an article, I think it was for GQ a while ago, about surfing on Reunion Island. And it's all about, you know, the shark attacks that have been there. And you know he made it back because he wrote the damn article. But the entire time you're reading it, you're like, no, get out, get out, get out. Yeah. You know, and it's just uh, horrifying to read it. So I feel like if you were going to go in a place like that that had a reputation, definitely I'd be too scared to even get in. But if I had something like this, it'd be better i think yeah so wait that,
8: so
5: what is the deal with it it's like electric and you have to charge it and no, no it's
6: it's not exactly it's just Uh-oh. a solid state magnet which i was uh, oh, okay. what i thought first too yeah you know, they make like heated wetsuits and a couple other things that right. actually are electronic you're like i don't want to have that in the water with me yeah but no it's just a really powerful magnet so much so that they say don't bring it near like a desktop computer with a hard drive or anything uh, like that
5: yeah interesting
6: it's heavy it's a little bit annoying it
0: says that's patented magnetic technology which i think just means it's a giant magnet i don't (laughs) (laughs) know i mean there might
6: be who knows who knows what's in there the other thing worth mentioning that they say on the side is like
5: people with pacemakers
0: oh yeah Yeah, it it does actually say that yeah if you have a pacemaker don't do that if you have a pacemaker you just got to risk the sharks man
6: sorry they say also the great white is different, which I didn't know this until researching into this, that the great white is so terrifying because they call it an ambush predator where it'll go really far distance and seek out prey as opposed to kind of bull sharks. The other ones that people typically get bit by, that which are a little bit more opportunistic. I guess there's like an, an aggression to them that, is not known to be effective against great white specifically. Yes. Isn't
5: that the shark that you're afraid of when you go
0: <laughs> surfing? <Yeah. laughs> I think generally speaking, uh, bull sharks, I think, are pretty bull nasty sharks too the most. as well. Bull sharks tend to bite people a lot, but they don't tend to eat you. Entirely. Mm. I think they just kind of like bite.
5: So it's $70 for 50 50 on the sharks (laughs) that you're $70
0: for, if it's a great white, you're still screwed.
6: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is also super regionally specific. Like South Africa has a big place for great white sharks. Oh, so then uh, never
0: mind about that reunion island thing.
6: Yeah, I forget exactly which species reunion has, but I mean, it it does appeal to me for this reason that I've been going in the ocean my whole life. And if I feel a piece of seaweed on my foot, I kind of will shake (laughs) (laughs) it, like jolt a little bit. I'm still, I'm such a wuss about it. It's just slightly more annoying than a regular leash for me to maybe not do it every single time. But if I live somewhere like that, I'm convinced by the evidence that they show and the scientific papers that they show seem convincing enough. If I live somewhere where this is an issue, I could see myself getting one of these for sure.
0: Right. I think that I would probably buy one, especially like if i were going into a place like Australia or wherever, where you just heard rumors or something. I feel like it would just make me feel better. You know, it's like, well, yeah. if the shark comes, maybe it'll bite that guy. You know what I mean? Like, not me.
6: I do think also, too, if the movie Jaws had never come out, would we be Even like this? talking about it? Yeah.
5: I don't
0: know. I think this, uh, I would buy this. Would yeah. you? You would. Yeah. Lara, would you buy it? I'm just saying far away from the ocean. <laughs> Another good choice. <laughs> That's our show, y'all. The most useful podcast ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.